Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking at me not because you saw the signs and performed that I performed, but because you, are, you ate the loaves and you'll and your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we, what must we do to the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, and to believe in, in one that he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see and, it will be, and we will believe it's you? What will we do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he's given me but raise him up at the last day for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father has learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which everyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of the Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whomever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I am in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while preaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of Thanks, Chris. I love it, Chris, when you say, get out your Bibles. Everyone gets out their Bibles. It must be the soldier's command. Uh, I'm not a soldier, but could you keep your Bibles open? That'd be great. Thanks so much. Um, and as we do that, as you do that, I want to start with a question. It sounds rude, I guess, but um, are you a materialist? Uh, you probably wouldn't um, introduce yourself in that way. Hi, I'm Danny. I'm a materialist. But uh, we're living in a material world, are we not? And so in some ways, we're all materialists. Um, Madonna, who I'm sure you all know, in the 1980s, she had a, a very famous song called Material Girl. And uh, we do need to, yeah... Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There she is in all her bejeweled glory. Now, um, you, you might know the, the words of the song. Some boys, what do they do? They kiss me, some boys hug me. I think they're okay, but if they don't give me proper credit, I just walk away. They can beg and they can plead, but they can't see the light. Because the boy with the cold, hard cash is always Mr. Right. We're living in a material world, and I am a material girl. Sing it with me, folks. Just kidding. It's not going to happen. She later explained, you are, by which I think she meant I am, uh, you are attracted to men who have material things because that pays the rent and it buys the furs. That's the security. It lasts longer than emotions. I can't believe she actually said that. Are you a material girl? By material, I'm I'm not actually all that concerned about whether you're materialistic. I'm not asking whether you're just about the cold, hard cash and the furs. I'm asking whether you basically think, at a practical level, that material things, that is matter, stuff, things you can see and you can touch, are what life is all about. And you can be material whether you've got lots of stuff or not much stuff at all. At the University of Cambridge, they're now um, teaching courses on material culture. And this is what some of the top academics in the world have said about materialism. Things matter greatly to humans. We have short lives and our stuff outlives us. While we can't tell our own story, maybe they can You see, the the academics from Cambridge, they're not talking about the crass excesses of the 1980s, but they're saying pretty much the same thing as Madonna was saying. Stuff lasts longer than our emotions, even longer than our lives. It provides a security for us. It provides a legacy. And I think they've summed up the human race pretty well. See, whether you're a local on the northern beaches uh, who's content with just the basic material preoccupations of work and play and food and drink and friends and family, or you've got an academic interest in material culture, or maybe you're even a first century Galilean Jew, most of us are, at heart, material girls, more concerned about food than faith. But in the passage today in front of you, Jesus challenges all of us, then and now, to pursue deeper spiritual realities in quite an intriguing way when he claims to be the bread of life. Now that's worthy of our concentration this morning. We are in the middle of John 6, where Jesus has just performed, as Nath said, an extraordinary miracle, feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 15,000 people with just a few loaves and fishes. 
coming against the kind of backdrop of the Jewish Passover festival, Jesus' miraculous provision of food, and he's walking across water, is really reminiscent of that first Passover experience where God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt by parting the waters of the Red Sea. And then when he graciously and abundantly provided bread to the people during their wilderness escape, when they ate that so-called manna from heaven. But you see, rather than seeing that the spiritual significance of all that, the Galilean Jews, have a look at chapter 6, verse 15. They wanted to make Jesus king by force. Maybe they were all revved up by the Passover festival. You know, that old story of escape from their former enemies. Maybe it, thought of, it made them think about the possibility of, a, of an escape from their current enemies, their Roman overlords. But in any case, they just do not see the spiritual significance in what Jesus has done. They're preoccupied with the material and the practical. Maybe he can be our king who releases us from Roman oppression and into those very ground-level hopes. Jesus enjoins them and us to see him as the bread of life. Now that is our concern for the day. He is the bread of life. He says it kind of obliquely in verse 33, but very clearly in verse 35, and again in verse 48 and 51, the bread of life. Uh, It's a bit of a circuitous journey to get there, though, isn't it, in the passage? So remember, we're up north in uh, Galilee, that's the the ancient northern part of Israel, kind of the hillbilly part of Israel too. And the Galilean Jews up there have just the day before enjoyed the great miracle, the feeding of the thousands. And their interest was piqued because they realised that Jesus was not at the site of yesterday's miracle. And they realised that he didn't get into the only boat that the disciples rowed across the lake in. And so when they approach him in verse 24, check it out, immediately he calls out their material, pragmatic approach to life. Verse 26, he basically says, come on guys, you're not here because of the signs, you're here because of the food. See, very much like Northern Beaches people. Uh, And so in verse 27 he says, don't work for food that spoils, work for food that endures to eternal life. Very similar to us, concerned with the practical uh, material here and now concerns. They want to be fed. They want to make him king by force. We want to pay off our mortgages or our rent or our school fees. We're just holding out to the next holiday, whatever it might be. And Jesus appeals to us all to pursue loftier spiritual concerns, to look beyond our physical needs and environment, to work for food that endures to eternal life. And the Galileans, they're, they're so uh, used to thinking pragmatically that they, um, they miss the point of his answer. You see, they should have asked a question about eternal life. What do they ask a question about? Verse 28, they ask a question about work. What must we do to do the works God requires? Come on, uh, you know, when do we go to Bunnings? What do we got to do? And when Jesus reorients this very pragmatic question, he's giving an answer to the question they should have asked. You just need to believe. Guys, it's not really work at all. You just got to believe in Jesus, the one whom God has sent. And I don't know about you, but I, I do find their response in verse 30 quite bewildering. What sign, Jesus, will you give us that we might see and believe you? Like, is that rude or what? 
I mean, what about the one from yesterday? You remember that one, guys? Uh, feeding of the 5,000, ring a bell. Uh, actually, the 15,000 of you wasn't there. You know, packed house of Brookie. I mean, you were there. It was quite impressive. Interesting, isn't it? Lots of people say, if only I saw God, I would believe. If he just did something amazing right in front of me, then I'd have faith. I just don't think you would. You're not going to believe his words. You're not going to believe a sign. If you're hard-hearted towards the claims of the Lord Jesus and his promises, you won't believe even if you saw a miracle right there in front of you. These Galileans had seen an extraordinary one just the day before, and yet they still ask, what sign will you give us? Now, it was Passover time. That was a national holiday. It was also a nationalistic holiday that celebrated a past release from slavery. So they may not have just been reflecting on God's abundant provision of manna in the wilderness way back then. Maybe they were hoping for a present political leader, a new Messiah to emerge. And it was expected in the new messianic age there would be a recurrence of God's provision of manna to the people. And so instead of chastising the people, which is what I would do, what about yesterday? Uh, He actually acknowledges this expectation and he applies it to himself, effectively saying, you think it was Moses who gave your ancestors bread back then? It wasn't Moses. It was the Father in heaven. And let me tell you something, he says. The Father gives you true bread from heaven and not just to you. This bread gives life to the whole world. And in case you missed it, I'm it. That's effectively what he says. And they still don't get it in verse 34. How frustrating. I've been so irritated by this point. But he just connects all the dots from their banal questions with those very famous words that I'd love you to read with me in verse 35. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. I'm the bread of life. I want to defend bread. It's got a nasty reputation these days, don't you think? Too carbohydrate and uh, high GI. So we're meant to dislike bread, but I love it, not just in secret. Uh, we were talking about this in a staff devotion during the week. Max said he loves naan bread. You know the bread you get from Indian restaurants? Who doesn't love naan bread? Lucky no hands are up because I'd have to ask you to leave. Wouldn't be welcome here. Gotta love naan bread. Some people like sourdough. Some people like crusty rolls. Some people like soft, fluffy rolls. Some people have to eat gluten-free bread. Uh, I think there will be no gluten-free bread in heaven. In fact, there'll be no gluten-free people in heaven. I'm not saying you'll be banished to the abyss, right? I'm just saying your allergies will be kind of cured and healed and you can eat bread with complete impunity. Thank you, Lord. All the bread you want, and I reckon you won't even get fat. But for me, I'm very partial to Turkish bread. Love Turkish bread. In fact, the very best part of my week is 10 o'clock on a Friday morning. Uh, Fridays is my day off. It's the only morning I can go for a longer bike ride. So I finish up around 10 And I meet uh, Carolyn at one of our favourite cafes where I consistently order uh, scrambled eggs with a side of roasted field mushrooms on Turkish bread. Now, I interrupted this routine last Friday and I regretted it. And I shared this with the staff team. And Nathan here, Youth Minister Nathan, asked me whether I turned up in my middle-aged man in Lycra cycling attire. And I said, yes, Nathan, I do. 
And then he said, do I mind if he turned up to join me? And I said, yes, Nathan, I do. <laughs> it's the favourite part of the week. You're not going to spoil it. <laughs> but of course, more than being super enjoyable, bread is it's the staple of the world, isn't it? I mean, it's the thing that keeps people alive, whether it's Turkish, naan, soft, fluffy, uh, crusty rolls, whatever, even gluten-free. It's the stuff that keeps you alive. And so when Jesus says... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. That's the kind of um, metaphor that he's thinking of. It's the very first of his I am statements proper. And he's saying that he is the one who brings sustained satisfaction to our spirits. Because the truth is, like I eat the Turkish bread on Friday, I'm going to need to eat it again pretty soon, aren't I? But you eat this bread, says Jesus, if you come to him and believe in him and his offer of life, you can experience a sustained satisfaction in your soul that is unmatched in your physical body. In fact, unmatched by anything else in all creation. My materialist friends, isn't this appealing? By claiming to be the bread of life, he is really saying he's, he's the answer to those needs of the human heart. He fills that great yearning of the spirit, of our own spirits, to be known and to be loved and to have a purpose in life and to be on right terms with God. I just want you to think of all those many things we do at ground level, whether that's because we're just super busy and distracted or we've actually been duped by clever marketing in our culture, all those many things we do that leave us unfulfilled and unhappy and dissatisfied and still restless. All those things we have been assured, if we have this or do this, we will have life and the yearnings of our heart will be satisfied. All those many things, most of them are good things, but we discover that they don't and they can't satisfy the yearnings of our hearts. And so our spirits are still restless and they will remain that way until we are right with God until we are certain of our eternity, until we experience the joy of being sure of our value and place as sons and daughters of the living God, which only happens by coming to Jesus, by hearing his words and by believing in him. I am the bread of life, he says. You come to me and you won't hunger. You believe in me and you won't thirst. He offers us purposeful life now, though often it is still difficult, and it will prevail into perfection for all eternity. And really because bread is a staple food across many cultures and across the ages, Jesus is saying that he can fulfill this role and this purpose for anyone across nations, across eras, across income levels, across classes. Verse 33, read it with me. Did you notice the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Nothing less than the world. Now I want to give you five very, it's unfair, I want to give you five very quick points of comfort about how this works before we talk about what our response should be. First bit of comfort is there in verse 37. There it is. Uh, All that the Father has given to Jesus will come to him. In other words, this salvation business, we're not on our own. We're not even working on our own. Not even Jesus is doing this on his own. The Father is involved in drawing us to Christ. 
We're not meant to get stressed about predestination. This is meant to be a good thing for us. Uh, Second point of comfort, verse 37 again. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will not drive away. Isn't that lovely? It's very receptive in that way. Third uh, quick piece of comfort, Jesus is doing the will of the Father who sent him. He's not gone rogue. He's not working in competition with the Father. He's working in concert with the Father. And friends, they're a formidable team who are working on our behalf. Verse 39 is the fourth bit of comfort. Jesus will lose none that the Father is drawing to him. He's not going to let you go no matter what you do so long as you come to him with belief. And then fifthly in verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. We humbly look away from ourselves because we are not and we have not the answer and we look to the Son. And in doing so, we have eternal life and will be raised up or resurrected at the last day and you have his word on that. Friends, he is the bread of life. He can satisfy the yearnings of the human spirit in a way that other things cannot. And so it becomes of us to lift our gaze off the material things that surround us and feed on him, which is just to look to him and believe in him. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I uh, was watching a David Attenbury nature documentary. Do you like those? I like those. And it occurred to me, does anybody else make nature documentaries other than David Attenborough? Has he basically bullied or spooked everyone else so there are no other nature documentary makers anymore? Anyway, I was looking at um, the North American grizzly bears when the salmon are on the run. Um, you know, when the, the salmon are swimming upstream in their millions and uh, the grizzly bears consume vast quantities of fish every day to get their calorie intake high enough to last them throughout the long winter hibernation. But uh, what I didn't realise is that if the salmon are in large enough numbers and if the bears sense this, they only eat a part of the fish. And can you guess which part they eat? It's the brains. The brains and the roe, that is the eggs. They're like zombie grizzlies, like give me brains, you know. They don't eat the flesh. And I thought, isn't that so weird? As we move on in this passage, uh, Jesus introduces a new thought. He says, actually, you have to eat his flesh. And I thought, similarly, isn't that so weird? What an odd thing to say. He's not only the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He not only says, well, you must eat of this bread, verse 51, and you will live forever. He then says, you must eat his flesh. Read along with me in verse 53. Very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That is so weird. Of course, uh, the the pragmatic uh, down-to-earth Galilean Jews there, they're resistant to him. Uh, They've already complained, did you see in verse 41, about Jesus claiming to have come down from heaven when they all know, know his mum and his dad. But by the time they get to verse 52, they are not happy at all. Uh, Have a look. They argue sharply. How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? You see, they're still thinking kind of materially rather than spiritually. We can't eat his flesh. That would be cannibalism or something. 
And uh, you read on and you kind of agree with him. You think, it does sound like he's talking about cannibalism, doesn't it? It's pretty weird. Or, uh, you know, a couple of millennia later, we might think, oh, he's talking about communion, that's it. Uh, And you might be aware that the Roman Catholic Church derives uh, a fair amount of its teaching about the Lord's Supper, what they call the Eucharist, from this chapter. In fact, uh, I was told last week that some Catholic churches, like the one in Freshy, even have a a piece of bread and a cup of wine inlaid on a cross on uh, stained glass windows in their churches, as if to say, Jesus is not a crucified saviour, much less a resurrected Lord over death. His flesh and blood is now bread and wine, uh, as if to say, well, it says it right there in John 6, and that's all he is today. But friends, if you look closely, John 6 is not talking about cannibalism, uh, nor is it talking about communion. He's just talking about belief in a different way. The Galilean Jews, they wouldn't have understood him as talking about communion. If anything, they'd have been freaked out that he was talking about drinking blood because that was not permitted in their religious law. The disciples wouldn't have understood him as referring to the Lord's Supper because he hadn't shared it with them yet. And they weren't that smart in the beginning, were they? Later, New Testament writers didn't think Jesus was talking about communion because they never used the word flesh when they talk about the Lord's Supper. And Jesus isn't talking about coming to a table Because he's actually saying, come to a person. Come to me and believe in me. Just look at how he parallels it in the passage there. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. But earlier in verse 40, he says, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. So he's not talking about cannibalism, not talking about communion, he's talking about belief. And really this idea of eating the flesh and drinking his blood is a a great um, kind of grounded metaphor for these folks. And folks like us who just have a material mindset, who, (laughs) who think more about food than faith. Because what he's saying is the belief that he's after is not just up here. The bit that the bears eat. He's saying it's deep in here. It's not just intellectual agreement. It's something you take deep into your soul. Not, not deep into your body or your stomach. That just would be weird. But deep into your heart and into your spirit. In other words, if you want the life that Jesus has come down from heaven to bring, if you want to experience the sustained satisfaction that only he offers, then the kind of belief he's after is not just intellectual approval. It's wholehearted belief. You might say it's consuming, that you take deep into your heart. The kind of belief that doesn't just acknowledge his historical existence, but which entrusts your future to the one who lived perfectly among us, which I think is symbolised really by his flesh, who died sacrificially for us, symbolised by his blood, who then rose triumphantly from the dead and who presently rules over everything. And so, of course, it's going to be the kind of belief that actually changes every part of your life from the inside out. And I don't mind whether you want to call it feeding on the bread of life or eating the flesh of the sun or just wholehearted belief. I don't mind what you want to call it. But it does change every part of your life from the inside out. I mean, let's just think about our natural greed. Uh, We could just try to suppress it, to push it down, 
But when you come to Jesus, the bread of life, with whom you never go hungry, then you realise very clearly that your money and your possessions, they're only going to take you so far. They don't still your restless spirit. They don't give you the security that Madonna said they would. And though they might outlive us, as the Cambridge academics said, they don't in fact live for us, do they? They don't bring us life. They don't give us lasting satisfaction. And so when you realise that, it opens up the possibility of wanting less, of taking less, of being less greedy, and also of being more generous, that is, to give more away. You see, feeding on him changes you from the inside out, from greedy to content to generous. Or uh, you might think about our anxiety, uh, the things we worry about, and many of the things that we worry about are short-term, practical things, aren't they? Um, we worry about money, or we worry about uh, events, things that are on in our lives, it might be school things, whatever it is, the kids. When you feed on Jesus, when you take his words deep into your heart, you hear him say through the scriptures these words, come to me. You are not in this on your own. The Father wants relationship with you, and I am not going to turn you away. I'm going to raise you up. On the last day, and I will not lose you. So long as you trust in me, nothing is going to take you from me. And when you know that security deep in your heart, it cannot help but melt away some of the short-term anxiety that we feel so often. So that feeding on him, the bread of life, can transform your life from the inside out, from anxiety towards peace. In various ways, coming to Jesus, feeding on him, eating his flesh, taking his word deep into your heart, it changes us. It can change our greed into contentment. It can change our anxiety into peace. I think it can change our critical spirit into a more joyful disposition. It can alter our natural self-focus into an other person-centeredness. Because in him, our souls find rest very freeing thing our wandering hearts can find sustained satisfaction and our weary spirits can find life now I wonder friends uh, for some of you today whether the real point is for you to pursue spiritual things Jesus things rather than being forever distracted or perhaps even just being really content with the basic material preoccupations of our age, work and play, food and drink, family and friends. I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm not saying they're not good. But I am saying none of them have the capacity to satisfy you forever and none have the ability to bring you eternal life. And yet there is one who calls out not only to a bunch of materialists in Galilee in the first century, but also to us today I am the bread of life. Come to me and believe and you'll never go hungry. Your ancestors ate bread in the desert, but they died. You feed on this bread and you will live forever. So friends, we do need to come to him and we need to believe in him and we need to take him deep into our hearts and then we will find satisfaction and rest and peace and contentment and joy and nothing short of eternal life. Amen and amen.
I'm going to hand over to Nathan now, who uh, I hope has forgiven me for my snubbing. <laughs> He's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper.